How are you guys feeling? Do you have room in your brain to learn? Yep. I like that conviction. Um, uh, before I jump in, uh, I want to say one more thing about Easter. So when Easter comes around, uh, on Easter Sunday, we have a group of people show up that don't normally attend church or um, haven't attended church in a long time. And so what we have done, it's been our habit the last couple of years, is we have announced, in fact, it's the only announcement that we make on that Sunday, we have announced a special teaching series that's usually two weeks long on something that would be relevant to an audience that doesn't normally attend church. Uh, and so then on Easter Sunday, we'll let people know, hey, this is what we're going to be teaching on over the next couple of weeks. And uh, our team together has decided to do a two-week series on church hurt. Uh, that is jumping into the topic of wounds that have been caused by church ministries. Um, I, I interact with people all over our community who are, who are not part of uh, a church, and I would say that they don't they don't actively uh, have any sense of walking with the Lord and having a relationship with Him. And yet I've, I've found that many of them have some church background, uh, that they have some history in church, and that there's some sort of complex uh, set of challenges that that history represents for them. And so we're just gonna, we're gonna jump in. And the reason I mention that is because um, we would like, if, it's, if we can pull this off, um, we would love to capture a couple of interviews uh, with some of you, and this is what we're looking for. Um, it would be a, a fairly short interview on camera, so we would record it and then, you know, kind of pare it down a little bit. Um, regarding God's redemptive work in your life through uh, church wounds, wounds that you received uh, through a ministry. Now, I want to be careful with this because this is not like a venting session. I love the church, and I love the church because Christ loves the church and died for the church. And, um, but I've also been wounded by the church. Not you, of course, but other, you know. Uh, we've all been wounded to some degree, but if you have a redemptive story uh, I was hurt by the church, and yet God has redeemed my story, and you're, you've already arrived at a place of hopefulness, and you would be willing to talk about that in front of a camera with some, with some help, we would love to, for you to reach out and connect with us, and we'd love to use your story as a testimony in that short series, a testimony to our community about the way that God restores and redeems. So any questions about that? No? Okay, let's move on. <laughs> So we're going to look into uh, the story of a man by the name of Asa, who was king of Judah. What the, what the scriptures provide us is a little window in to the lives of other people, a window into their lives for the purpose that we might be able to peer into their life and, and learn something from it. Now, oftentimes, when the, when the Scripture presents a story, it doesn't offer much interpretive insight about the story. So in other words, the author will say, this is what happened, but the author oftentimes won't tell us what we should think about what happened, 
right? It just says, this is what happened. Well, in this story, the author is very careful to tell us, um, to sort of give us some insight into what's going on. But this is the beauty of the biblical narrative. It's an opportunity to look in to the lives of others and, and learn truths about God and the way that he relates to man. It was actually, uh, I was in San Antonio, Texas last week, and I realized while I was in San Antonio that one of the things I miss about living in Homer is when you're in traffic and you have that, you know where you pull up and you have to wait a long time and there's a car right next to you and you just kind of like acknowledge each other and sort of like look into each other's private homes, you know? Like no other time could you just walk up to someone's window and be like, hey, what's up? You couldn't do that at someone's house. That would be illegal, right? You can't even do that in a parking lot. But when you're in a city and you're in traffic, you can just pull up and just kind of like check out what's going on in their little private world, you know? <clears throat> Actually, you know what should be more private that should not be public is those massage chairs in the airport. <laughs> Whose idea was it to like give you an experience that makes your eyes cross and makes you want to moan out loud and have you face towards a sea of strangers moving past. <laughs> it's too private. You should, not, you should not enjoy those chairs in such a public location. <laughs> but we're going to look in. We're going to look in at the presentable details and the unpresentable details of the life of Asa. And what I want to do this morning in the brief time that we have is I want to tell you the point of my teaching before we get to it, okay? I'm going to tell you the point of the story. And again, this is, a, this is an instance where the author tells us the point of the story. So I'm going to offer it to you, and then I want you to use that as sort of an interpretive grid by which we then make our way through the story. And then what I'm going to do at the end, I'm going to tell you the story I'll tell you the point of the story, I'm going to tell you the story, and then we're going to draw some observations from the story about how we avoid the same outcome. Here it is. This story is about the subtle shift from dependence to independence. This is a story about the, sh the subtle shift from Dependence to independence. The nearly imperceptible movement that takes place in our hearts where we go from dependence on God to a sense of independence. The reason I think this story is so important is because this movement is very difficult to detect. And by difficult to detect, I mean it's difficult for us to detect in our own lives, and it's actually difficult to see in the lives of others. Have you ever worried about me as your pastor? How many stories have you heard of leaders falling into immorality? Like a lot, right? You know what would be much more difficult for you to observe in my life? Is the slow and subtle move from dependence to independence. It happens so quietly, and yet it's a condition of the heart that represents as grave a threat 
to my own spiritual vitality and my spiritual capacity as a leader as immorality would represent. It's a shift that happens when I grow weary of feeling my neediness all of the time. I confess that this has been true of my life, that if God were to answer all of my prayers right now, in other words, he was to give me everything that is the content of my prayers, that the end result of that would be that I would feel less of a need for him. I actually want a life where I don't feel, moment by moment, my intense need for his intervention. Okay, ready? It's a great story. Just a little context. So we had Solomon, remember that guy? Uh, Matt kind of set us up for this last week. You remember Solomon? Really wise, except he wasn't. Squandered it all. People turned away. So this is actually, Solomon is Asa's uh, great-grandfather, but it's a very short period of time. So Solomon died, and then Rehoboam, remember his son, Matt talked about this last week, who said, you think he was bad, I'm going to be way worse, right? I'm going to put even more burdens on you. I'm going to tax you even more. I'm going to require more of you. And 10 of the tribes said, eh, no thanks. We're going to go do our own thing. And so the, the kingdom is split. There's, excuse me, there's Judah and Benjamin under Rehoboam, and then Jeroboam takes the other 10 tribes, and they go do their own thing. And there's, there, there is, we're going to touch on some of that story uh, next time, but that's a very... That's a rough story. So our story is that Rehoboam reigned for 17 years. His son Abijam reigned for three years. And then uh, Asa became king and reigned for 41 years. So the time between Solomon and Asa's reign is only 20 years. That's a pretty short period of time, right? So 2003, what were you doing in 2003? That's how, that's how far ago this was. So Asa becomes king of Israel. And here's the story. Asa's anointed king, and he decided that unlike his uh, father and his grandfather, Rehoboam, that he was going to serve the Lord with the whole heart. Uh, Rehoboam had not only uh, increased the idol worship of the people of Israel, but had introduced some grotesque components. Uh, specifically, what's named is male prostitution as a part of their worship. It's pretty bad stuff. It's a pretty, it's a pretty precipitous fall from the time of David and the early reign of Solomon. So Asa becomes king, and he decides, we are going to serve the Lord. I am going to serve the Lord. And so he tears down the idols. He tears down the altars uh, to the idols, all of the places of worship. He destroys them. And he not only restores true worship according to God's prescription, but he restores instruction to the people regarding the law of God and the covenant of God. He removed the temple prostitution. He commanded his people to follow God's commands with all of their heart. And in doing so, he restored social stability. He restored security to the land. And God blessed him. 
In fact, it says that God blessed him with peace in the land. Isn't that one of the, one of the, one of the most wonderful benefits of saying yes to the Lord is peace that he provides, right? Asa went on and built fortified cities. He built up his kingdom, strengthened his kingdom. 41 years is a long time. Well, he wasn't king for very long before he faced his first uh, major test of his commitment to follow the Lord and seek the Lord. And that test was in the form of an Ethiopian army. Uh, the, some of your Bibles might say the land of Cush, and some of them might say Ethiopia. It's that part of northwestern Egypt, kind of modern-day Sudan. An army came up through that, through their territory, uh, pillaging as they went, and it says that the army was a million soldiers strong. That's a big foot soldier army. And it says that Judah and Benjamin were able to muster 580,000 fighting men. And Asa realizes we are, we are outnumbered, significantly outnumbered. We are outgunned. And the safety of our people, our families, our homes is at stake. And so Asa did what we should all do. It's such a great example. In 2 Chronicles 4.11, it says, Asa called to the Lord his God, and he said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. You felt that before, right? You ever been in the battle and felt like you had no strength? Help us, Lord our God, for we depend on you. And in your name have come against this multitude, Lord. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. It's a great prayer. And it says that God answered their prayer. And they routed this unbelievably massive army. In fact, not only did they rout this attacking army, they pillaged the attacking army which actually, and we don't have time to get into this this morning, is a way of God. When our enemies come after us, he not only gives us victory, he gives us blessing as a result of that victory. So the enemy is driven away, and they find peace again. Second Chronicles 15. Now the Spirit of God came to Azariah, the son of Obed, and he went out to meet Asa, and he said to him, He's, he's, a, he's speaking from the Lord. He said, listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will let you find him. If you abandon him, he will abandon you. For many days Israel was without the true God, without a teaching priest, without the law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel. They sought him, and he let them find him. In those times... There was no peace for him who went out or him who came in because many disturbances afflicted all of the inhabitants of the land. Nation was crushed by nation, city by city. God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you, be strong. Do not lose courage, for there is a reward for your work. What a great story. So Asa got really serious. 
even more serious about following the Lord and his commands. It says that he, he obliterated the rest of the idols, all of the other forms of worship, all of the locations for the idol worship, and he gathered the nation, his, his people together, to make sacrifices and to make a collective covenant with the Lord. Let's all get together and agree to pursue the Lord with all of our hearts. And so they did. And it says, the story tells us, that the, a couple of the neighboring tribes that had gone away with, with Jeroboam, uh, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon in particular, they all started defecting to Judah because, the, the, the narrator tells us, because they had a sense that the Lord was with Asa. He said, hey, we want, we want what you're offering. There's peace, there's stability, there's security in the land. Asa even fired his mom out of obedience to the Lord. Says that his mother had built a grotesque idol in the temple. He said, Mom, I'm sorry. It's not, we're not doing this anymore. You might be my mother. I love you, but we're not doing this anymore. Took the idol. He cut it down, hauled it away, and burnt it. And then it says that he brought the treasure, his father's treasure, gold and silver to the house of the Lord and dedicated it to the house of the Lord. And there was a time of peace until the 35th year of his reign. Been king for 35 years, long time. And then a guy by the name of Basha, probably not pronounced that way, but I'm not Hebrew and I don't live 3,000 years ago, so we're going with Basha. Basha was king of Israel, the other tribes. He got tired of all of his people defecting over to Judah. He said, I'm going to put a stop to this. So he started building a fortified, a fortified city sort of on the, on the route from his area to Judah. He said, we're going to build a city here, and we're going to prevent any more people from going that way. Asa heard this, saw it as a threat, and so Asa took the gold and the silver from the temple treasure, he took it down to Damascus to his buddy Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, a neighboring country. And he said to Aram, or sorry, to Ben-Hadad, he said, hey, our dads were friends. They had a peace treaty. I would like to strike a peace treaty with you. Here is gold and silver. Can I buy your allegiance? And Ben-Hadad said, yeah. That seems like fair. And so he took his army, Ben-Hadad took his army, and he went and attacked Basha. He said, stop bothering my friend. Basha realized that he was outgunned. He gave up on building the city Rama. Asa took his army. They tore that city down stone by stone and used the materials to build cities for themselves. Second Chronicles 16, at that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and he said to him, because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, for that reason, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he handed them over to you, for the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth so that he may strongly support those who is completely his. 
sorry, those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will have wars. And then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for saying this. And Asa mistreated some of the people at that time. And then a final statement, the final description of Asa's life. Chapter 16, verse 12. And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, and yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Three chapters, we have this movement. Second Chronicles 4.11, help us, Lord our God, for we depend on you. The end of his life, Second Chronicles 16.12, and he did not seek the Lord. The shift from dependence to independence is a very subtle one. It's something that happens almost imperceptibly in our lives. But the fruit of independence and the pursuit of the independent life is evident. So what I want to do is I want to give you four indicators. These are indicators that I have wrestled with in my own life. Four indicators of my movement toward the independent life. Is my heart moving more towards Jesus, or is my heart moving towards the benefits that my relationship with God has provided for me in such a way that I no longer have to feel my desperate need for him? What are indicators that that's happening for you? You ready? Are you willing to consider? You can leave now, because once you hear this, you're accountable. The first indicator that this story provides us is that I have grown comfortable robbing God. I have grown comfortable robbing God. So the story is in 1 Kings as well. It's not just in the Chronicles, it's in the Kings. 1 Kings 15.15 says, and he brought his treasure to the temple of God. And then 1518, three verses later says, and he took the treasure he had brought to the temple of God back out of the temple. Why? Because that treasure was the price of purchasing his independence. This is exactly how much money I need to purchase my independence, to purchase my own security, by my own strength and my own resources. This is what's gonna cost. It's going to cost exactly all that I have which means, I'm sorry, I had initially intended to be generous towards the Lord with what I have. Unfortunately, the cost of my independence is too high. The reason that we don't give God what is rightfully His is because the cost of, our pur- the cost of purchasing our own independence requires everything that we have. The independence that Asa sought 
was at the cost of everything that he had given to God. I can no longer afford this kind of generosity because I need these resources to purchase something else for myself. For those of you who are like my age and older, do you remember when you had nothing? Do you remember when you were just broke? You remember that? I remember that. And then you're not. And isn't that so much better? And then you're not broke, and yet somehow you realize I need all of the dollars more now than I even needed them then, and I didn't have any then. Imperceptibly, I've moved towards using the security that my money allows to provide for myself a sense of my own independence, which is a false sense, of course, we are not independent, but we use money to secure a sense of it. And it used to be that this much money would make me feel secure enough. Also, I was more easily dependent on the Lord because, you know, my situation was so dire. I would say, Lord, if you don't intervene, we're going to be in trouble. And now, I don't like that feeling, so I've kind of moved away, and I've gotten better at things, and I make a better income, and now I have this much money, but also I need exactly this much money to feel secure in my life, to, to, to do everything that I need to do to provide for myself the life that I want. That's what happened to Asa. Lord, this is, I have nothing. We're so dependent on you. Here, take all of this. Oh, uh, just one second. Um, I'm going to need that back, actually. <laughs> Uh, I just realized that we have some issues that are going to cost exactly this much. Malachi 3.8, would anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed God? In tithes and offerings. So here's the deal. This is the thing with money. I actually don't like talking about money as a pastor. Our culture, our churches in America are awash in money. We have so much money. God doesn't need your money. He lays claim to your money because your response to his claim of your money is a revelation of the condition of your heart. Every time that you take what's yours and out of, from a place of dependence say, Lord, I want to give this to you. It's, it's a revelation of the condition of your heart. And all of the ways that we try to prove things about ourselves that circumvent that, it's not effective. God says, no, I want you to be generous with your money, your hard-earned money. If money is buying your independence, I just want to offer you a word of caution. You might be in trouble. You might be you might be subtly moving away from dependence towards independence without realizing it. Today, do you cling more tightly to what you have than you did 10 years ago? Or are you more open-handed with what you have? Dependence, dependence upon the Lord will always lead me to hold everything I have with open hands before him. I need him more than I need all of this.
the second indicator of my movement towards the independent life. I've grown slow to confess and repent. I'm less likely now to confess and repent in the context of my human relationships than I was 5, 10, 20 years ago. That's a movement towards independence. I don't think there are, I think there are very few traits that are more easily identified with a life of dependence than the habit of confession and repentance. Do you know why I'm not drawn to confession and repentance as a way of living? Because it's the worst. Because confession and a repentance are an acknowledgement of my own weakness and frailty. The dependent person has accepted his or her own weaknesses, the effects of those weaknesses, and this happens relationally with the people in your life, the people you know the best. Confession and repentance. I was wrong and I'm sorry. Second Chronicles 16, the first part of verse 10. Then Asa was angry with the seer. He put him in jail. I would never do that, right? And then my kid comes to me and says, Dad, you're being mean. And what do I say? Go to your room. How dare you? Here's the deal. It's not, there's, 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 there's a motive behind that resistance. It's not just how dare you challenge me. It's do you know the sacrifices that I've made? Do you know the work that I've done? The peace that I've brought? All of the blessings that my life have been to this land and now you tell me that it's not enough? How dare you? So disrespectful, so ungrateful. Because the independent man, the independent woman, hates the reminder of the cost of their own sin. The seer comes to him and says, you blew it. 35 good years does not negate the fact that you blew it. I want to offer a, a, a sidebar here. There is a very, uh, very appealing and sexy version of, of curated weakness that is not only acceptable today, it's preferred. People will like you more to the degree that you're just, you know, I just like to be honest about my messy and difficult life. You know, I have... I have problems too. There's no, there's no repentance in it. It's actually comes from this place of self-righteousness. I'm establishing myself as a good person by publicly acknowledging the things about me that are publicly acceptable to acknowledge. You track with that? And it's endearing. You're so honest. Oh my goodness. You're the best. I just love real people. I know, right? I'm pretty real. 
There is a form of public confession today that will increase your credibility. You know what repentance does? You know what true confession does? It makes people concerned about you. Oh. Uh. True confession and repentance is always a self-indictment. I'm going to get, I'm going to choose to get myself in trouble with the people that I love and the people that love me so that I can address the sin in my life. And what is it that allows me that strength, that courage, dependence upon the Lord? Why would I be embarrassed to yet again acknowledge my great need for him? James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. Prayer of a righteous person when it is brought about can accomplish much. I would argue that the righteous person in this context is the forgiven person, the dependent person, the person who walks in the gift of righteousness. Are you quick to confess and quick to repent? Is that a regular and reoccurring part of your most intimate relationships? If it is not, I want to warn you, you may be growing acclimated to the independent life. I easily grow weary of needing to confess and repent. I don't like my dependence to be so obvious and out there. You know what I mean? Like, I want you to know that I'm dependent. I don't want you to see that I'm dependent. Wow. Aaron really needs Jesus. I mean, like, more than most people. I mean, I need Jesus, but that's why Jesus came right there. The third indicator... I've grown harsh in my criticisms of others. Second Chronicles 16.10, and Asa mistreated some of the people at the same time. He got mean. Self-righteousness will always make you mean. It will always make you more critical. I'm pulling it off. What's your problem? I figured out how to be a good person. What's taking you so long? The independent life will not only increase your confident judgment of others, it will decrease your compassion for others. Matthew 23, 4. They tie up heavy burdens, they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as their finger. My righteousness is what entitles me to judge you and your righteousness. Matthew 9, 13, go now and learn what this means. I desire compassion rather than sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners
growing in my own sense of dependence upon the Lord will always make me kinder to people who are struggling in their own sin. It will make me more understanding, more gracious. I'm actually, I'm actually hesitant to be critical because of the abundance of grace that I've received and need daily. My need for him is so great. I have a hard time pointing at you and saying, what's your problem? The final indicator of my movement towards a life independent of God is that I no longer depend on God. I'm just not going after him. I'm not drawn to prayer. I'm not drawn to be with him. I'm not... I mean, think about it honestly. If God stopped providing, what about your life would change? Anything meaningfully? In the 39th year of his reign, this is in, in verse 12 of chapter 16, Asa became diseased in his feet. His di disease was severe, and yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but physicians. This isn't a, a statement about what God thinks of physicians. This is a statement about what God thinks about those who refuse to seek him. Those who take every, all of his blessings, all of his provision, and use that as a platform by which they then deny their need for God. Remember the movement. Help us, O Lord, Lord our God, for we depend on you, and he did not seek the Lord. It's one of the things I love about the Apostle Paul. Paul was a man who learned to embrace his dependence as an opportunity to know the power of God in his life. 2 Corinthians 12.10, Therefore, I delight in, in weakness. He actually says, I boast in weakness, in insults, in distress, in persecutions, in difficulties on behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have discovered that the more honest I am about my need for him, the stronger I become. But it's not mine to own. It's his strength operating in me. What a blessing. Uh, Chris, you guys can come on up. So I got to this part of my preparation. I thought, well, okay. What am I asking you to do in response? There are some things you could do, obviously, like fairly straightforward. You could practice generosity. You could develop the habit of confession and repentance. It's actually not a bad idea. But I think sometimes our our lack of dependence, our independence is facilitated by the fact that I'm not actually moving towards anything that would be impossible to do without God's strength. 
And so maybe the way forward for you is just simply to say yes to that thing that you've been too afraid to say yes to. How many times have you heard me stand up here and say that it's the mission and calling of God in your life to make disciples? You want to feel your dependence as a value of your life? You want to feel dependent? You want to feel your weakness? You want to be reminded of your frailty in a way that makes you cling to the Lord? You should try making disciples. I've embarrassed myself so many times and gone home and thought, why do I keep doing this to myself? And yet every time, it's like the Lord is so kind and says, no, 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 by my strength, by my strength, Aaron. Remember, this was my invitation to you. This was not your idea. This was my idea. I want to reveal my power through you. And this is the beautiful promise, the hope that's in this passage, in the Chronicles story, 2 Chronicles 16.9, for the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth so that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Isn't that such a reassurance? If you want other people to notice you, be really strong. Be really great, and you will get noticed. You want God to notice you. Get down on your knees and acknowledge your need for him. He actually says, I'm looking for those people who recognize their position before me, who confess their dependence and their need. if you don't show up. I've got nothing. If you don't provide, I will go without. don't meet me here and now. I can't take another step. I can't do it. I don't have it in me. I don't have the strength. I don't even have the desire. So would you come? Would you give me the gift of your presence? Would you by your spirit bring me the comfort that I need?
confess all of my desire to establish my own worth by my own merit. before you now as one in need. that you would be near the brokenhearted right now. You would offer your strong arm to the feeble. That your spirit would, would breathe on those who have no hope for tomorrow. Give us grace. We confess our need for you. Actually, wasn't planning to end this way, but if you want to take a few moments and just come forward and just get on your knees as a posture of dependence, you can do that now. You don't need to. You can stay where you are so critical right now that you hear from the Lord, that you don't waste the opportunity, that you meet with him. Uh, went a little long. We're going to go into worship. It might go a few minutes long. Uh, but we're going to go into worship. We're going to sing to the Lord. So I invite you to stand and uh, enjoy his presence. Meet with him in the way that you sense he is calling you to meet with him now. Would you do that? Let's stand. Of this, I am exceedingly confident that God is calling us towards himself. It is his desire for us to know him. And that's our greatest joy and our greatest freedom. So we have some prayer warriors in the back. If God is asking you to say out loud what you fear the most to say in confession, 
please don't leave this room before you do it. So if people are praying, would stay back there for a little while. Give the Lord a chance to convict a few more hearts. <laughs> Just do it. It's where your freedom lies. Be courageous. Be bold. If you're new, join us for lunch in a little bit. I'd love to see you there. We don't officially end till 1230, so stick around, hang out. Have a blessed week. May God be with you. We'll see you next week.